a lot of guidelines now get taken and evolved heavily from their genesis or from their starting point. That really is a factor you have to think about when you're creating a brand is how can this evolve over time and does this have legs to last five, ten years and evolve with the company? Design systems have been on the minds of those of us in the software industry for more than a decade now, and for good reason. To create large-scale software with a consistent experience, standards are needed to guide contributors. But this isn't a new problem. Before software designers created design systems, brand and print designers created design standards to guide creative collaboration. We had a chance to talk to Hamish Smythe, He's the co-founder of the popular tool Standards, and we relish the opportunity to nerd out with him on this subject. We spoke with Hamish about what design standards are and how they differ from design systems. Some examples of famous standards like Massimo Vignelli's New York City subway map and NASA's standards manual, and also about what Hamish learned about getting corporate buy-in from working with famed designer Michael Beirut from Pentagram. This is Design Better, where we explore creativity at the intersection of design and technology. I'm Eli Woolery. And I'm Aaron Walter. You can get ad-free episodes a week early and get access to our monthly AMAs with big names in design and tech by becoming a DB Plus subscriber. It's also the best way to support the show. Visit designbetter.plus to learn more. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. As a Design Better listener, we think you'll enjoy Tools and Weapons. It's a podcast hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Brad's conversations with leaders at the intersection of the promise and perils of the digital age touch on some fascinating topics, like the new AI economy and how AI is becoming a tool in the battle against hunger. On a recent episode, Brad was taken to Venice, Italy, where he connected with Eve Ubelmanhoff of Iconum. It's a startup that specializes in 3D digitization of endangered cultural heritage sites. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone capture photography and some powerful AI tools to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. How cool is that? On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, you should subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith, wherever finer podcasts are served. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, back to the show. Hamish Smythe, thank you for being on the Design Better podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Look, you've done a lot of really interesting things, and we're particularly interested in the work that you've been doing 
around design standards for a long time. This is a, an essential part of design process, design history, and branding in general. So maybe the right place to start is just lay it out for those who are uninitiated. What is a design standard and what goes into it? So there's many types of designers, of course, and I'm a graphic designer, I guess you would say, by trade. And you know, within graphic design, like anything, there's a number of specialties. And my specialty is probably, I would say, branding design. That's the practice of often rebranding a company, so coming up with a new logo and uh, overall look and feel. Within that process, sort of at the end of that process of branding a company, the designers will typically produce what they call, well, it's called a lot of things, but graphic standards manual or a brand manual or a graphics guide or whatnot. But essentially, it's an instruction manual for all of those things that have been designed over the past few months or however long it's been. And all of those kind of decisions and things get put together into a book. And it used to be a physical book and still is sometimes. But what's in that book is sort of all the ingredients that somebody else needs and can use to take a brand and put it out into the real world and extend it and design things in the future, essentially. So it's sort of a recipe book in a way that other people are going to use. So the designers who create the brand typically write the manual, and I'll probably call it 10 different things, but I'm talking about one thing. They'll typically write the manual and it's a specific type of book. It's sort of often very focused and very rules-based manual. It can range from that, or it can be a very loose sort of basic guidance, uh, essentially. So there's a spectrum of how these manuals can be constructed. And designers work on these and then essentially hand them over to the client at the end of the project. That's how it typically works. And it's kind of worked that way for a long time. And going back to Look, I'm not a design history expert, but I believe, you know, in the early 20th century, forms of graphic guidance and things like that started to appear as the sort of Swiss movement style took over. A lot of them sort of took on this very clean aesthetic and became sort of objects in their own right, which we now admire from uh, a weird subjective point of view where they're not really useful anymore, but there's a almost a fetish for them among designers in a good way. There's some standards out there that are just sort of iconic and have historical import and a few that come to mind, especially after going back and looking at your website, things like Massimo Vignelli and the New York subway map, national parks work, NASA. Maybe we could start with one of those and just walk us through a little bit what those entail. This book, the New York City Transit Authority Graphic Standards Manual, it's a long name, this was created by Unimark, which was a large international branding consultancy in the 60s who were hired by the MTA. And the MTA had a problem where they were combining multiple agencies at the time, which were the you know, Interborough Rapid Transit and all of those. They were being combined into one agency and they needed to have consistent signage and wayfinding in the system. I think they went to Unimark because they were sort of known at the time for that idea of creating order out of chaos. And what they produced was a hyper-modern and extremely simplified, stripped-back 
as Swiss as you can get kind of graphic guideline. The numbers, everything is in standard medium, which is supposedly the only cut of or similar cut of accidents grotesque they could get. But accidents grotesque being the sort of famous and commonly used typeface in all of the Swiss movement, as well as Helvetica, of course. But that book, when it came out, was contained in a huge binder, about 14, 15 inches wide. And the reason for that was it was sized one-to-one scale for reproduction. So this is going back to the 60s when they created it and released in 1970. There was no computers, so to reproduce the graphics, you literally would take a photograph or cut out the piece of paper and then use that to be reproduced with various screen printing methods or things like that. The original book had perforated paint chips with Pantone printed pages in it that you could actually pull out and then match your paint that you were mixing up at whatever Home Depot was in the 70s. And so it was an extremely manual and analog process. And so the book had to be that size and the discs of the numbers of the trains are 12 inches wide. And so the book has to be 14, 15 inches wide just to accommodate that. So just the physical nature of it is extremely interesting in that it was a book that you would use to actually reproduce graphics with. And I think Massimo Vignelli, one of the designers on the project, along with Bob Norder, I think was famously quite annoyed at how poorly the MTA sign shop had implemented some of his exquisite work. I think he's on record saying that they were hacks or something like that. But, you know, a lot of them would take the guidelines and hand draw the letters, you know, trace them and do a pretty bad job of it. So that's, I think, the reason if you've been able to read the book, which you can on our website for free, uh, standardsmanual.com. Just a little plug. We're all about kind of sharing it. So you can read the pages and they're extremely dry and extremely kind of instructional. It says, do not ever do this. You must do this. Use this typeface at your peril, basically. Use the incorrect typeface at your peril. Massimo will come and get you. And so it's it's quite funny how kind of strict it is. And that's a contrast to how a lot of manuals have sort of progressed over the years and there's sort of been a bit of a rebuttal against these strict guidelines that were the sort of norm in the 60s and 70s. But I think they, you know, the reason they did that was that they were dealing in an analog world where there was not a lot of room for interpretation and you had to do things by the book or it wouldn't look right. Cutting it out, tracing it, pulling paint chips out, literally by the book and That is in contrast to today where I think designers have taken graphic manuals and now we approach them in a manner that works with how brands work today. Where back in the 60s, you could design a brand, you could have a logo, a letterhead and a truck and that would be it. And you could put that in the manual, kind of beautiful in its simplicity. Designers will know what I'm talking about. If we just had to design you know, a letterhead and a truck, that'd be great. But today's brands need video, they need animation, they need thousands sometimes of executions and rules to go around that or guidelines to go around that. So there's been a big shift and I think brands today have a much more open interpretation just due to the nature of how brands work today. Let's dig into that a little bit more because there are some kind of famous, relatively contemporary examples of very successful brand standards 
that caught cultural attention, but also have these kind of flexible joints as well. And the one that I'm thinking about is my friend Scott Thomas, also known as Simple Scott on the web. He was one of the creative directors on the Obama campaign and worked on that brand standard, which it was like a shift in the way that people approached political campaign design and logos and type and stuff. And Scott, you know, I remember Scott talking about how they had crafted this beautiful system. They used Gotham. Like there was a reason why they chose this American historical typeface and the logo and how everything fit together. All these standards of do this, not that, et cetera. But they got to this point in the campaign where there'd be like Irish wolfhound owners for Obama or you know, Daughters of the Revolution for Obama. And they realized that, you know, part of the campaign is that people have to merge their identity with the campaign's identity. And so they had to give in and let people go. I don't know if you're familiar with that example or if you have other examples of how brands try to build flexible joints. There is an example I know. I worked at Pentagram, New York. I got lucky I won an award in university and the prize was a two-week internship at Pentagram. So I came to the U.S. for two weeks and I'm still here nearly 15 years later. This prize really changed my life and I was working uh, on Michael's team, Michael Beirut, partner at Pentagram. I kind of landed on his team and then a few years later, this secret job started appearing on the calendar. We had a shared, you know, Apple calendar. The code name was High C, which somebody figured out. Somebody figured out it was... Hillary Clinton. So I was there during that period and I didn't get to work on the project, but my now business partner, Jesse Reed, we have a studio called Order. He got to work on it with Michael and it was a very, very small team. It was Michael, Jesse, and Julia Lindpainer, I believe, sort of a strategist researcher. And the Hillary campaign, now infamous, of course, was sort of an evolution, I think, of that Obama campaign idea of really branding the hell out of politics. And there's been a lot of commentary on the Hillary campaign and why it failed. I don't think it failed because of a logo or anything, but a lot of people said, you know, it was over-designed and I think it was a great system and they really worked hard to incorporate, like you were saying with the Obama campaign, incorporate ways of drawing the logo with finger paint or having people just draw it themselves. It was supposed to be simple enough that you could create a sign with a Sharpie. It's very interesting getting into political branding, probably not something I would want to delve into myself. It's sort of a, a fraught subject, but yeah, you know, we all know how that turned out, but I think the work they did was really sharp. And, you know, if you're going back to guidelines, they created a very, very simple guidelines manual for that. Another shift we've seen, I think, in the last few decades, I guess, is a lot of guidelines now get taken and evolved heavily from their genesis or from their starting point. That really is a factor you have to think about when you're creating a brand is how can this evolve over time and does this have legs to last five, ten years and evolve with the company one of the worst things being a designer is when you've branded a company and it gets redesigned. It's kind of soul crushing. Part of a hedge against that is trying to create identities that can be molded and shaped and evolved by other designers. So it kind of becomes this weird collaboration between unknowns across time. You've worked on some brands 
like MasterCard, I believe you're involved in the redesign for that. Correct. With brands like that, how do you approach it in such a way that you kind of respect the history, but also realize that you're there to do a job to make the brand more modern and like you've been talking about, also make it flexible enough that new people coming in can expand on it for you know multiple uses? I think it was 2014. We'd just finished a big project for the city of New York called Walk NYC. It was a wayfinding project. And we designed maps and icons, and it was in a joint venture. It was an amazing project. Kind of the polar opposite of being asked to look at redesigning MasterCard. And they had come to Michael, and they actually didn't come to Pentagram with the job of redesigning MasterCard. They came and said, would you take a look at our brand and basically would you recommend us rebranding in the future? A cynic might say, of course, the answer is yes, because we want to get the job. But we took it very seriously and we actually, that was the project to begin with, was should we rebrand? And we kind of embarked on an analysis of their history of the whole brand as well as the mark itself, which there's a lot that goes into that. And we sort of put together a, a huge presentation for them. I remember showing it to Michael for the first time, enormous presentation going back in history to the beginning of graphic design and kind of sounds silly now, but you know, we went back and you know looked at the genesis of print and all of this stuff. And we went right through to sort of modern design and all the time kind of analyzing it against their mark and how their mark had evolved over history. And not many people know it, but we kind of went back. The mark that you see now is kind of like their original one. Something we do a lot in design is, you know, bring back and update something from the past. But their original one, I believe the company was called Interbank, which merged with something, anyway, it was called Master Charge, I think. But they had two overlapping circles that sort of darkened in the middle, like a multiply effect, I guess you would call it today, on a computer. And we looked at that and we looked at all the history around it. And then we dove deep into really nerdy details of how their existing logo looked. And they'd had the same logo for about 25 years, I think, which is nearly like a world record in graphic design. Things don't last that long. Only a few brands do without changing it. But they'd had the same logo, I think, since the mid-80s or sorry, early 90s. And if you can remember, it had MasterCard was written on top of the circles it had a drop shadow, it actually had two drop shadows if you looked closely, yeah. And it had the 80s, 90s interwoven lines. I was like 27, I had a lot of spare time. So, I was, you know, I was working late and I found like research that somebody had done from the trademark department on the amount of logos that had intertwining lines. And we put that in the presentation, you know, it peaked in like 1993 or something like that. We went really hard on this presentation. <laughs> Michael, I think, saw it and he called it the Gutenberg Address of Design Presentations. It was this vast document. You know, cynics will say, of course, your recommendation was to redesign it. Yes, it was. But we really built a strong case around it for their internal team to show their bosses and try and convince their leadership, the CMO and the CEO, that this was a project worth taking on. So they'd been very strategic. When I say they, I mean the, our clients who were the MasterCard global marketing team. They had been very strategic in how they approached the project and sort of took one little step saying, should we look at this? And the answer was, 
that we came back with was yes, and that was what they recommended up the food chain. And so a few months later, it came down that we had been selected to do the design. So it kind of happened in stages. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash designbetter. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com designbetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. And now, back to the show.
You alluded to Michael Beirut, who's a very well-known designer and a close partner with Paula Schur, who we recently had on the show, you know, working with him. And he's not only a great designer, but he's also a great communicator. Can you share with us like some of the techniques or the tactics he uses to present an idea to clients and to get that buy-in that is needed for a massive change like what you did on the MasterCard project? How does Michael push that through? I don't want to give away all of Michael's secrets if he ever listens, but he would he would be the first to say there is no secret. What I think Michael's really great at is he didn't have a playbook. Every time was different. And so he was extremely good, I think, at reading the room and reading the clients, not just in the room, but sort of reading the whole process from the first phone call through to presentation time. He would come in and say, you know, I don't think they, these guys really are going to want like a showy presentation. I remember one time we did, he said, I think these guys are kind of old school. Maybe we do like a Vignelli style board presentation. And so this was like 2015, 2016. We were printing out physical logos and you know all of our slides and mounting them on card and then wrapping that in paper and tying it up like it was the 1950s and taking it uptown to a meeting on the Upper West Side. And we were sitting there and flicking through these physical boards and he was spot on, you know, that's what they wanted to see. They, they held them up and they compared them side by side. So he read that from that client. Another thing he did really well, which I noticed a lot was, as you said, he's an excellent communicator, not only in communicating ideas across, but he can sort of come into a room, read the room, and kind of immediately figure out who is maybe going to be the hostile one, who's the ally perhaps, and then kind of work those people very, very subtly. He was very good at disarming people as well. So if somebody got a little bit testy about something or you know a little spicy, he was able to sort of disarm them rapidly in a very kind way. You know, a lot of the time you could tell people just didn't, you think that design was important or a lot of the time, you know, people were almost, or a lot of these, especially corporate clients, I think Michael said this to me one day, I think he said a lot of these people were sort of almost embarrassed to talk about colors and style and things. And, you know, you have to work with that and sort of allow them to feel safe about discussing shades of red or, you know, discussing the minutiae of a typeface and he was very good at sort of including people and hearing them out. But the whole time he was running the show and was sort of masterfully kind of taking all of this stuff in and was able to sort of sum things up at the end of a meeting like I've never seen before. You know, he'd come in, listen to everyone and say, okay, I think what, you know, the problem here is, is that this side of the company is is doing this, but you guys think it's supposed to say this. And what I think is perhaps, you know, a very gentle way sort of put his opinion in. And the last thing I guess I'll say is he's probably the smartest person I've ever met. And so he was nearly always right with these things as well. And so he would come in, disarm, and then just blow people away with some sort of often, you know, 10-minute monologue. Maybe that's why I got the rant from him. But, you know, he'd come in and, and do this thing. And at the end, people were just almost speechless. <laughs> sometimes and and they'd be like that makes complete sense michael great how do we roll this out you know 
it was amazing to see and, and a real privilege to get to work with him for him and learn a little bit from him. I think everyone that works for him sort of takes a little bit of his brilliance and does their own thing with it. I didn't learn the craft of design from Michael. We kind of did that ourselves and with our colleagues, but the big thing we learned, and I think everyone who works with him will say this, is that he teaches through osmosis the business of design and which when it comes down to it, you know, graphic designers used to be called commercial artists and it is a sales game, essentially. It's a weird mix of creativity and sales. You can be the most artistic creative designer, but if you can't get it approved, it's never going to see the light of day. So having those skills is, I think, a really underrated part of design and many creative fields, I think. So learning that from him was a real privilege and I know how lucky I am. One of the tactics you mentioned there, it seems like sort of this thing called active listening where Michael's there, he's listening to the clients, kind of list out their problems. And instead of immediately like jumping in and saying, here's my solution, he says, here's what I heard, lines that out. My parents are both psychiatrists and they've taught me that technique. When I, and I'm, I'm terrible at it, but like if I get an argument with my wife, it's like, here's what you should do. You should listen, you should repeat back, et cetera. Because you know, it does two things. One thing is that Sometimes you misheard, right? Or I misheard what my partner was saying or my client was saying. But then it also builds trust that you're actually listening to them and not just like forging ahead with your own ideas. Did you take that kind of tactic into your own practice? Yeah, absolutely. I think active listening is a good way to put that. It sounds very much like what I was describing. I was recently talking to somebody. They said, we need to write a brief for our project. It was an internal project. I didn't really know what to do because when we started a project with Michael, this is just kind of how I learned how to do it. The first thing we would do is talk to the client and get on the phone, typically back then, a real phone that you could put on your shoulder, uh, which I miss. But we would get on the phone sometimes for hours and we'd call multiple people in the company from sometimes the intern through the CEO and conduct these interviews and just listen. And, you know, we'd take copious notes and from that, somebody would say something like, that's how we've always done it here and that's how the founders intended it. And we'd be like, oh, what did the founders do? And then you would pull these strings and find out interesting things about the company that we would then tie back into the work. So it was a really sort of interesting way of doing research. And that's sort of how I learned how to do design was listening and interviewing. And so when I was asked to write this brief, I sort of didn't, it was also for myself. So I didn't know what to do because I couldn't interview myself. And so, so I didn't know where to start, but we definitely took that approach to our practice at order. And I say, we, Jesse and myself, and we really operated and still operate order doing our best Michael Beirut impression, I'd call it. We try and do things exactly how we did a pentagram, basically. There's no tricks to it. We're kind of doing things how we were taught or how we learned from Michael. And part of that was listening and sitting down. And a lot of designers, I think, don't do that, I've found out. And, you know, I'm not judging anyone, but I think it's a good thing to do, to talk to people. And I know it's a big thing in digital product design, figuring out your personas and interviews and things like that. But I think it's sort of a dying art in the branding design world is talking to people and Sadly, I think a lot of, I hope I don't 
cop flack for this, but sadly, I think a lot of designers now start with mood boards and will actually present mood boards to clients. And for those who don't know, a mood board is, you know, a collection of other people's work that might convey sort of a grouping of logos or it might be a coffee packaging and they'll find things that they like that have already been made, print them out or put them on a digital board and then present that to the client and sort of get the client to say, yes, I like that kind of look and feel. And I see how that's tempting because you kind of get a pre-approval on a design direction in a way, but it's also super limiting because you, in a way you're kind of regurgitating other people's work. There's a very simplistic way of looking at it. And of course, you know, we're all regurgitating everything, you know, nothing is original, blah, 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 blah. But I think there's still some original ideas out there that can be combined. And I used to think of it as finding disparate ideas, I call it, where you would find out, you know, something interesting over here and something odd over there. And then you'd mix it together. And sometimes there'd be like this link. It was like, oh, wow, that was designed by the same woman in 1960 at the college that we're working on or something like that. And that's like a magic moment when that happens. And that is really fun to me is linking disparate ideas. And I think you can only get to that by really researching things in a nerdy way, interviewing people, talking to people, and kind of going really deep on things. And I think the best work that we did at Pentagram and the best work that I've done as a designer myself, I think, always has a strong concept. The best ones, I think, are based on disparate ideas that you can link together in a new format, so to speak. And that's really fun. And when you get to present that to someone, you can kind of build it up and you can say, we found this from 1850 and it ties back to this thing that you guys did last year or something. And it's really fun and a neat way to present work that really has a little bit more meaning behind it sometimes, I think, and allows people to sort of maybe buy into it more than choosing a style from a mood board. I think it's great. Sometimes people sort of get in the habit of like, this is how I work and this is what I'm supposed to do. I was taught this in school and so therefore I'm doing it and never really turn a critical eye towards their processes and see the flaws. But, you know, what you're talking about, hypothesizing about how people might feel versus going and talking to people, which one's going to give you greater accuracy, lower risk, better connection, better results. Well, talking to the source is probably a more effective approach. So I think that's great advice for people to hear, even if it's somewhat heretical to a select few. It's a good skill to build. And I probably sound like I'm preaching, like my method is the best method and absolutely isn't. It's totally flawed. One thing it is, is it takes a lot of time and it can be extremely boring, you know, interviewing 20 people sometimes, but there's many, many ways of working out there. But I think at the core of it, if you can create just a little new idea from some other ideas, because it's all from other stuff in the past, I guess, everything. But sometimes you can create a little new thing, maybe that's built on top of an older pile of stuff. And that's super neat when you can do that, I think, and you create something little that's new. And I think, yeah, you get there from moving away from looking at other design. And that's a cliche thing to say, you know, the, what's your favorite design book? Oh, it's not a design book at all. But I think that's true. It's a lot of designers when they're starting out, I did this to go out and buy a ton of graphic design books and 
they're good to have and all of that. But I think watching films and watching TV shows and going to theater and things like that allow you to create a broader knowledge base in your own head and allow you to sort of link those ideas, like I was saying. One more thing that I love that I learned from Michael was started at Pentagram. I was fairly young and I was reading about design every day. I'd go home and I had design books and really trying to like be a graphic designer, capital GD. And Michael would come in and be like, oh, did you guys see the latest episode of Mad Men? And I was like, oh, I don't watch TV. Like, I don't have time for that. You know, snobby kind of just out of art school kind of attitude. And Michael was extremely knowledgeable and into pop culture. And, you know, he's a theater nerd. And I think he knows every Sondheim, like by heart. That was sort of when I started to realize that, oh, okay, you need to have a broader picture of the world. And you do that by consuming other media and other things outside of your profession. Hamish, are you game to do a rapid fire series of questions, 30 seconds or less? Yeah, for sure. Okay, here we go. First, does voice fit into a design standard? Absolutely. It's usually the first thing that goes in. Voice strategy is super important. I could talk for a long time about that, but strategy and the voice of a brand is as important, I think, as anything. How does information design inform standards? I would say often data visualization is something we'll touch on in standards, but it's almost its own profession and it's super hard to do. So we'll often just gloss over it and say, here's how you do a graph that looks cool. But you really need somebody to sit down with that stuff and really do it properly. Super important. Your favorite historical standard? I'm a tragic space nerd. So I have to say it's the 1975, I hope I got that right, or four NASA graphic standards manual designed, sorry, block the mic, designed by Richard Daney and Bruce Blackburn, which we reprinted. It's putting logos on a space shuttle. Enough said. <laughs> For listeners who can't see, Hamish has the book in a amazing silver mylar case. I mean, this is an art object. This is beautiful. Well, thank you. You know, we just reprinted literally the book. We added some stuff at the beginning, like an essay and things like that. And we did our best to reproduce the book. I mean, we painstakingly separated the colors out into their original Pantones. And it was an immensely complex print job. If anyone wants to talk to me about that, 13 Pantone colors, Richard and Bruce and their team did all the work. We just put it together and put it in a space bag because I got a space ice cream from my uncle when I was young from uh, Houston. <laughs> I remember I that. I thought it was cool. <laughs> yeah. We'll link to that in the show notes so everyone can find it. Uh, last question in our rapid fire, design systems versus design standards. What's the difference? Because many people in our audience are coming from a digital product design background, very familiar with design systems, maybe not of design standards. Huge difference, and it's really a different profession. A digital design system is the details of including often code of a digital product. So an app or a website uh, can vary, but for an application, a digital product standards can be immensely complicated. And now with the tools that product designers have, like Figma and 
the complexities that you can build into that and beautiful complexities with variations now and obviously components and things like that. It's a whole different ballgame to brand standards. And so they're very different and they're both very important. Awesome. All right. So we're going to wrap. It's not our traditional wrap question, but we think folks will be interested in learning about the products you're working on, standards, and where they can find more about that. I tried not to talk about it all because I don't want to seem like I'm uh, plugging our own product, which would be very embarrassing for me. So, but since you asked, (laughs) we've been developing a new way to create guidelines and we're trying to really at a high level push the format of brand guidelines forward. Talking less now about digital product guidelines, like we were just discussing and more traditional brand guidelines they really haven't evolved. Essentially, you know, most people are still creating PDFs, page after page documents that get sent out over email. And they're static documents that have, you know, there's version history problems. You can't control who's seen it, who has it, who has what version. And that's just, you know, one of the problems. But it's really a PDFs, you know, sort of a 90s technology that was fantastic at the time. It sort of hasn't evolved or it isn't appropriate for how guidelines need to work today. And the obvious play is to have online guidelines. And many companies have that. IBM, for example, has a fantastic custom-built, extravagant, beautiful design system online for both brand and product. I don't know what it costs, but it certainly wouldn't have been cheap. And so to do guidelines online has sort of been a challenge. You know, you had to create a whole website. And what we're trying to do with standards is make that easy and doable without coding a single line of code and be a new way for brand designers to build guidelines online. And so it's a specifically built online tool built by brand designers for brand designers. And it allows you to publish brand guidelines online, share them widely with your company or your client or the whole world is an open website. And so we're just getting started and we're excited about the future of trying to push guidelines forward and what that means and how they evolve from being this sort of uh, instruction manual version of the past and what that next future version is. I think it's going to be generative. I think you're going to have guidelines that, well, they already exist, but guidelines that will produce things for you. There's all kinds of ideas around using AI, of course, the buzzword at the moment. But really, we're interested in seeing what people create with our tool. And that's been a really fulfilling thing is moving from branding companies and working with clients into creating a tool. And I'm sure you, you know you guys have had that experience working at Envision and it's a really fulfilling thing to create a tool that people use to create things with. You know, Steve Jobs has a lot of quotes about that. He would say that needed is to create something that people create with. And it's really a sort of a, again, a responsible feeling that we have that we're creating tools. It's really cool. And it's been a a nice thing to do. And we've got some amazing customers doing some stuff we couldn't have imagined when we started out. Yeah. And the standards that are produced with your product, they look beautiful. They look inspiring. Where can people go learn more about your product and maybe try it out? If they look beautiful and inspiring, that's all them. I mean, everyone starts with a blank page, essentially. And we have a number of tools that can help you out, but people have really taken to it and and are creating great stuff. Our website is standards.site. You can learn all about it there. And you can actually sign up for free and create a guidelines 
literally in minutes. It sounds too good to be true, but we can take your high-level brand assets if you upload them and create using our automations, we call them, and our outlines that we've designed and sort of put our experience into. You can have a draft guidelines ready, you know, within minutes, literally. So it's very exciting. And, you know, we've got tens of thousands of people creating stuff every day, not all at once. That would be overwhelming, but you can go there and sign up and check it out for free at standards.site. Hamish Smythe, thank you so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast. Eli and Aaron, thank you so much. Have you seen the new MacBook Air? Oh man, they are so fast, they're super light, and they are beautiful. And we're giving one away to a lucky winner. To enter to win the new MacBook Air, all you have to do is complete our listener survey. Tell us a bit about you and share your feedback about the show. It'll help us improve, and you could soon be enjoying a brand new MacBook Air. To take the survey, visit dbtr.co slash 2024 survey. That's dbtr.co slash 2024 survey, and you'll automatically be entered to win. We'll randomly select a winner on Friday, March 1st, so be sure to complete the survey by then. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter, with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. Or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetterpodcast.com. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.